0: Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health outcomes and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. I hope you enjoy today's podcast.
1: I'm Elise Karen, Practice Improvement Coaching Lead for Cardio's Team Best Practices and Associate Professor of Medicine at Case Western Reserve University. Today's podcast will address the timely topic of hypertension management in the era of telehealth. With me today are Dr. Randy Wexler and Dr. Shalina Nair. Dr. Wexler is a professor and clinical vice chair of family medicine at The Ohio State University. He attended medical school at Wright State University and received a Master's of Public Health at The Ohio State University. He has received research funding from the National Institutes of Health, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and the Health Resources Services Administration, as well as private foundations. His research interests include health policy, systems change, and improvements in hypertension control in primary care. Dr. Nair is an Associate Professor of Clinical Family Medicine at the Ohio State University. She attended medical school at Neomed and received a Master's of Business Administration at the Ohio State University. She is a Six Sigma Greenbelt and serves as quality lead, the Family Medicine Clinical Lead for the eConsults program, and is both a portfolio coach for medical students and an applied health system science coach. Her interests include preventive health, chronic disease management, and quality improvement. Welcome, Dr. Wexler and Dr. Nyer.
2: Nice to be with you.
1: So Dr. Wexler, I think the first question is for you. How have you handled blood pressure management during the time of telehealth?
2: I think what it did was force us to rethink what an acceptable blood pressure is. So for example, when it would be time for a patient whose blood pressure was critical in their care, we, ahead of time, contacted them and asked them to get a blood pressure machine Uh, explain to them the proper way to take their blood pressure, ask them to do so and be ready for the visit. That worked about 40 to 50 percent of the time. For those who did not, we, well, most of us would then talk to them about the importance of doing that, and the trade-off is, if you go out and get a blood pressure cuff and use it properly, then we won't have to have you come into the office. So for many patients, that served as a strong incentive to actually increase their self-management and understanding of their blood pressure control because many patients, for a variety of reasons, much of which was COVID-related, but some of which was not, some of it was convenience, wanted to be able to continue to to manage their blood pressure through telehealth. Uh, During each particular visit, it was also important to ask general screening questions you might ask, such as chest pain, shortness of breath, whether somebody had PND or orthopnea, whether somebody had visual changes or headaches that might have been different. But the other thing is, many of us are on a similar electronic health record, which has care everywhere. So myself, what I started doing was looking in the person's care everywhere aspect of their chart, and if they've had a blood pressure within the last six months somewhere else that was normal, I accepted that blood pressure, and we worked from there. However, if the blood pressure was abnormal— then we would talk about abnormal and what we might want to do from there, which depended on risk factor as well as the degree of abnormality with respect to the blood pressure. The final component to that was looking at least in in the electronic health record, um, how it's set up at Ohio State, and we're on EPIC, as will be many of you who are listening to this, was under the media tab. There are certainly going to be independent practitioners and specialists who would have seen the patient that may not have information necessarily immediately available in care everywhere, but it may be scanned in under the media tab. And so by going under the media tab, I could also evaluate to see what the particular blood pressure was there. By doing all of those things, you're actually able to cobble together a decent look at where somebody's blood pressure status might be doesn't mean you don't necessarily have to have them come to the office. I've certainly had patients who've been hovering in the 180s, 190s systolic, and we were in the process of bringing their blood pressure down. But for a lot of patients in the 140s and 150s without symptoms, you can actually manage them in that manner, as well as those who have a normal blood pressure and continue to reinforce previous medication and therapeutic lifestyle change.
1: So uh, just a follow-up question. How do you educate patients about how to measure their blood pressure at home by phone or video?
2: Sure. So the American Heart Association and a lot of groups have um, visual kind of one-page handouts for patients on how to do that. And there's a number of them out there, not just the American Heart Association. And different patients learn differently uh, from different visual cues. Some prefer bullet points. Some do not. And these handouts tend to go through the standards, which include a quiet room, five minutes of rest, how to place your arm with the blood pressure cuff on it, um, making sure you've gone to the restroom prior to your blood pressure being taken, feet on the floor, sitting up properly, all those types of things. And so that's the best way, I think, to communicate with patients around that. The other thing I always communicate to patients, and sometimes I forget to do this till it's too late, People are out there buying wrist blood pressure cuffs, and it's important to let them know that not only should they never use one of those, they should never use the finger cuffs for blood pressure as well. It really needs to be a blood pressure cuff that goes around the upper arm.
1: So how do you order a home blood pressure machine?
2: Uh, it depends on the patient's insurance. Uh, different individuals uh, will have coverage. Some will not. Um, right now, I tend to uh, recommend to folks, I have a link for it, uh, the British and Irish Hypertension Society has some, what they consider to be approved or validated blood pressure cuffs. Um, and you can go on there and see what those are. Omron tends to be one that's pretty common. Uh, and although the costs for these machines are in pounds, uh, you can find those here in the United States as well. For some, such as those who may have Medicaid coverage, you can actually order this through the pharmacy, through your electronic record, uh, uh, based on diagnosis. But you also want to use the correct code, which would be A as an atom, 4670. And so that helps to reduce the barrier for those particular individuals to get a blood pressure cuff. So there's a variety of ways to go through that process And talking with patients. A lot of it has to do with um, what their coverage uh, availability is.
1: So how comfortable are you in your ability to use home blood pressure readings to guide treatment?
2: My comfort level is dependent upon patient engagement. Prior to all of this, when a patient would have a blood pressure cuff that they bought, I'd have them drop it off at the office, and we would actually compare that to the blood pressure uh, cuffs that we have at the office to have an idea with respect to um, how close uh, the matchup is. Um, we know that accurately taken blood pressures in comparison to home versus office, um, the accuracy is actually better at home than it is in the office and provides you better information to act upon. But that is dependent on the patient being engaged properly. And that's dependent on using a, a blood pressure machine that, that not only is appropriate, so again, no wrist and no finger, but also one that um, as, is as calibrated as possible. Can't do that in today's world. So um, right now I have to rely on the machine being as accurate as whatever reading it provides me. And the next time the patient comes in, uh, we will have the opportunity to see how accurate that is. That's one thing I can't do currently. The other thing is to have people remember that home blood pressures are different than office blood pressures. So for instance, if one is looking at 130 over 80, At the office, that's the same on a home blood pressure machine. But some folks, if you're using 140 over 90, and that's where NQF is, and that's where a lot of value-based programs are, then 130 over 85 is the cutoff. So it's important to recognize that if the patient provides you a blood pressure of 138 over 88, that's actually not controlled based on accurate home blood pressure monitoring. So it's also important to understand those differences.
1: What are the upsides and downsides of telehealth for hypertension management?
2: I think the biggest upside, at least from my perspective, is patient engagement and self-management support. One of the things that telehealth has forced us to do is to work with the patient for them to be more engaged in their health. Prior to the significant use of telehealth, it's, it's very easy to have the patient come to the office, check their blood pressure, give them a handout, and send them on their way. But in accurately managing uh, blood pressure from a distance, you have to provide much more education to the patient with respect to um, not only how to check that blood pressure, but actually how to manage that blood pressure, uh, whether it be through medication changes, therapeutic lifestyle change recommendations, and things like that. So from a patient engagement standpoint, I think it's really, really good. Um, Downsides, like with anything else with technology, there are tech issues. Um, Everybody's home on, on Wi-Fi, so sometimes the visit itself doesn't go as smoothly as one might want it to go. Again, the accuracy of the cuff would be one. Um, and, and patients not measuring properly. And then, you know, one of the things we always face, and, and this will, those of you who've, who've practiced as long as I have will remember this. Prior to the use of A1C, patients would come in and have a, a blood glucose when you stuck them in the office of 110, yet they continued to have symptoms and they continued to have manifestations of micro and macrovascular disease. Well, that's because there were always a lot of patients who maybe weren't compliant until they knew they were coming to the office. So then they started taking their insulin more religiously and started taking their medication more religiously. And that's not because they didn't care. But prior to coming and, or, and seeing the provider, patients want to be a good patient. They want to be compliant. They don't want to upset the provider. Same can be said with blood pressure. So one of the downsides is we don't always know because we can't see the machine as to whether or not the patient's blood pressure is actually the one they're reporting. Now, some machines will actually allow you to to keep a couple of those on there, and the patient can hold that up to the screen if you're doing it by video, and that allows them to do so. But I think that's one of the downsides with respect to doing this from a distance is what's being reported, is that actually what the the patient is finding?
0: Dr.
1: Nyer, do you have anything to add?
0: Uh, no, I mean, I just agree with what um, Dr. Wexler said in terms of the downside is you're not really there to check it and verify it. But I think in these cases, we just need to go with the reported uh, blood pressures that the patient's providing to us. So how do you address a low-salt
1: DASH diet when people are at home and trying to avoid shopping or facing challenges obtaining healthier foods?
2: That's always been a challenge, even pre-COVID especially in our underserved populations who may be in a food desert or food insecure, especially now when people are gonna shop less uh, and have much more limited resources because of their finances, they're gonna to wanna to purchase food that lasts longer. So going out and buying fresh fruits and vegetables may not be as high on their agenda because of the more limited shelf life, the not wanting to go shopping as frequently, et cetera. So people often will turn to canned goods. Now, canned goods themselves are not necessarily bad if you do the right thing by checking the labels. But you want to make sure, especially with your hypertensive patients, that they're not buying fruits with a lot of added sugars and syrups and fructose. And with the vegetables, uh, you don't want them to have uh, vegetables that have a lot of added salt and sodium, which is a hidden problem for those folks who are looking for a higher shelf life. Now, you can get frozen fruit and frozen vegetables, They have a much longer shelf life because you can keep them in the freezer. They're more expensive than canned goods, but they are, for lack of a better term, healthier typically because they don't have the additives you may find in a lot of the canned goods. So you really need to work with patients to better understand looking at the labels to make choices that do not have high sodium loads and those that do not have high sugar loads.
1: So... Dr. Nyer, how have you handled patient trust building and rapport using these new telehealth approaches?
0: So, I think it's important to reassure patients that we are providing safe and quality care and that they are not missing anything by having their visits conducted through telehealth services. By them checking and providing their blood pressure readings along with other information that we're able to obtain at the visit, such as their weight, their diet, the history since the last time we saw them, review of systems and so forth, we can, fec- we can effectively manage their hypertension, make medication adjustments when needed, and safely order or defer labs and imaging as appropriate to their current situation. Um, If they do need to be seen in person, then we do have policies in place to protect them with temperature checks and masks, as well as staff and providers also following these guidelines and wearing the PPE. So that's something that I've been able to reassure them If maybe I need a Chem 6 that, you know, I really don't want them to wait on it. They do feel pretty reassured that we're following those guidelines. Um, Overall, I've personally found that my patients have been really satisfied with their telehealth experiences, even if they had some reservations uh, prior to doing it, and that we've also been able to uh, manage a lot of medical conditions this way that we may not have thought we were able to prior to this.
2: Dr. Wexler, do you have anything to add? No, I think that covered it very well.
0: So
1: I know everybody's experienced technical hurdles during this conversion to telehealth. How can we address these technical hurdles for the Medicaid population?
0: We offer a variety of video visit options such as MyChart, UpDocs, Doximity, Skype, FaceTime, all of which have been allowed with the uh, relaxed guidelines currently. These options can help fit different patient technology capabilities, including addressing different hardware, software, or Wi-Fi variability. We do also have the capabilities to perform telephone visits. So if there is a barrier to doing a video visit due to lack of any of those resources, there's no smartphone, laptop, Wi-Fi, we're still able to provide quality uh, care by telephone. There's also some options for free and reduced cost internet services available, and so that could be something that can aid the video visits. We also offer interpretation services for telephone visits as well as multi-party options. And ultimately, if none of those options work for any lack of resources, uh, we can still offer in-person visits if needed. So how can we preserve a team-based model of care with the telehealth approach? So even though we're providing care remotely, we still have access to all of the same resources that we had prior. So that includes pharmacy, nutrition, behavioral health, all of which are available in all of our primary care locations, as well as continued access to specialty care. If we have patients who are struggling with their diets, for example, we can link them with our nutritionist, have them set up a telehealth visit to further discuss that and reinforce the importance of following the low-salt and DASH diets. If patients have anxiety about their health care, we can coordinate telehealth visits with behavioral health if we're having difficulty controlling a medical condition such as hypertension, we have the access to e-consults, which are electronic communications that are initiated by a PCP uh, between them and a specialist with the intent to advance the diagnosis and treatment plan for the patient. And so these essentially electronically documented curbside consults are available specifically for cardiology and nephrology if we have issues with resistant hypertension, but they're also available with a variety of other specialties within our medical center to address a variety of conditions. Ultimately, we still have essentially all of the resources available to continue the team-based approach to care, even if it's done remotely.
1: So we know that there's an issue with disparities in hypertension and cardiovascular disease, but how can we minimize the disparities while implementing telemedicine?
0: So one uh, resource that we have is we have a document that was created uh, from one of our behavioral health colleagues that actually has an extensive list of community resources. So we've got general resources, which include public health and relief programs for housing, utilities, other services. It's got food programs, which uh, have the locations that we're offering free meals and also the food pantries internet providers, which offer the free or reduced cost internet services to low-income families. It has information related to a variety of other things, utilities, prescriptions, transportation, mental health, and a lot of other services. And so I think this resource has actually been really helpful if we are coming into any disparities. So what
1: processes has your system developed to obtain reimbursement for telehealth?
2: At our institution, um, there have been a number of groups that have convened around this because the uh, different types of care and needs being provided will vary across specialty. So with respect to primary care, the uh, government relations folks, especially with respect to Medicaid, have worked to make sure that some of the previous HIPAA requirements and restrictions in place for telehealth Uh, barriers were removed. So, for example, electronic visits where a patient chooses a particular disease process and then can fill out a questionnaire online that electronically goes to the provider. Historically, the Ohio Department of Medicaid was requiring a hard copy written signature to be able to provide that care because there may be billing involved. And so, of course, it's hard to do that with an electronic visit that a patient may send to you at 10 o'clock at night and you don't see till 8 o'clock in the morning. So uh, the government relations team worked with not only Medicaid, but a lot of other stakeholders with respect to making sure that discussions around removing those barriers occurred, which, which they have, and made it a lot easier to provide that services as well as to be reimbursed. In addition, a lot of this has gone on at the federal level because as everybody will recall, a lot of the guidance that payers follow uh, is whatever CMS does. And so by having CMS reimburse for telehealth uh, from telephones, excuse me, to be more specific, and then make telephone visits equal in reimbursement to other types of telehealth modalities backdated to the 1st of March was huge. And then there were a variety of groups and entities within the institution that were looking at things from the standpoint of necessary urgent procedures and things like that. But as importantly, was making sure that behavioral health was addressed. And uh, recently, I believe it was in the last week or two, uh, CMS allowed behavioral health to be delivered by telephone, which was very helpful for our underserved population, especially our Medicaid patients, who may only have access to telephone. So I think this occurs at both the state and federal level and it occurs within a variety of specialties working with our government relation folks as well as our managed care teams to look at the various barriers that we knew existed, the ones that popped up, and then work through the process to see how we can address them. I will say that across the board, that as this all occurred, I think all the stakeholders moved very quickly to do what was in the best interest of patients and remove a lot of these barriers. So that typically within about seven to 10 days, which as anybody knows is, is light speed with respect to how things transform both in policy and healthcare, uh, to allow us to provide these vast array of um, telehealth modalities that Dr. Nair described to allow us to care for our patients. Those, those types of evaluations are still ongoing. There are still discussions to occur um, as as, um, as the years progress, as this year progresses. There, of course, is a consideration for sunsetting um, these reimbursement policies Uh, in both the governmental and uh, commercial sectors, and we want to make sure we have ongoing discussions around that, at least for the foreseeable future, even if COVID cases continue to decline. The need to provide telehealth will still be where we need to be for a variety of reasons, including um, high-risk patients being exposed, even if that exposure is less than perhaps it was in March or April, as well as individuals who may now have Uh, child rearing responsibilities because daycare is not open or they're not available to go to daycare because of cost so that we can still provide them the care that they need.
1: So now that patients aren't able to access services like they were before, do you think that disparities have been exacerbated? For example, if they've had issues getting access to healthy food before, is that issue exacerbated?
0: I think to some degree that has been. Uh, one of the things that I thought was really nice is when this all started, that a lot of the schools, when the school age children ended up having to stay home, were still providing the free breakfast and lunch to the students because there were a lot of children who needed those meals and relied on those meals. And this might've been something that people with access wouldn't have thought about, but I, I think it was a really nice service that was provided.
2: Yes, I I would agree. The the other concern that that I have had um, with regards to exacerbation of disparities is many of our patients who come from underserved populations don't have the access to Wi-Fi that others have. And they may have phones that have limited amounts of minutes. uh, And so uh, doing a telehealth visit may be a problem from the standpoint of not only Wi-Fi, but the minutes that they're uh, allowed to use. The, the same document that Dr. Nyer had mentioned previously, put together by our behavioral health folks, uh, also lists the free Wi-Fi locations around Central Ohio. Uh, it does require uh, patients to, to get to that location, which is another issue, obviously, for disparities, because transportation is such a huge issue in that population. But I do agree with Dr. Nyer that across the board, I think these disparities have been exacerbated for all of these reasons
1: so dr nyer could you please describe the process of how you learned to overcome barriers to implementing telehealth and how you helped your colleagues troubleshoot any of the
0: problems they had sure so when this all started uh my chair gave me some time to work on telehealth so that because we knew that this was something that needed to expand rapidly so what we did is my my medical assistant was kind enough to test out the platforms with me, and so we tested out. Our system has um, the Epic MyChart visits, and so we essentially just practiced. I tried to contact her, see what kind of barriers she might have had in joining those visits, And so that way we were able to provide that information to uh, our colleagues and then also patients when they were gonna use those visit types. We also then used UpDocs, which is another third-party visit type that we're using. And we did the same thing with that, actually as well as Doximity in that I just contacted her asked her what it looked like on her end, she would send me screenshots that, so that we could spread that information around as well. And just trying to figure out what kind of barriers or what kind of pop-ups or um, things might, might come up during the process that we wouldn't anticipate. And so I found that that was really, uh, really helpful because then once we did expand and really roll to virtual care, we, we, had, we had worked out a lot of the kinks. So I think it was a, a much easier process. Thank you to our featured guests, Dr. Wexler and
1: Dr. Nair, for joining us today. And a special thank you to our listeners for tuning into Cardio Radio.
0: This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular Health Collaborative.